0: Well, welcome this evening and thank you for coming back. Uh, the weather's so nice out there, I think this is one of those days that you could worship God just as well in the backyard or riverbank or somewhere. Of course, then you wouldn't be encouraging your brothers and sisters in Christ, but uh, I think you could commune with God pretty well today out there. Beautiful day. We are working on Sunday nights on a series called Training with the Twelve. Our concept is we're playing like we're the 13th Apostle and going along with Jesus and looking at different things He taught them. Uh, he had them for a little over two years, probably, and taught them what He thought they needed to know to start the church. So if we can uh, travel along with them and see some of the things they learned, Uh, Maybe we'll be better equipped to do what we're supposed to do in his kingdom today. Uh, We started with a short series about the apostles and just learned who they were and what their background was and kind of got settled with them. And then our first topic that we're working on is religious liberty uh, or religious acts, if you will. Jesus got into trouble, if you want to use that term, he got confronted Uh, by the religious leaders and the Pharisees and others on a number of different religious acts, uh, things that you do or don't do. And so we've been looking at those for quite a number of weeks. We started with Sabbath keeping and saw the confrontations there. We looked at ceremonial washings the last time we were together. And tonight we're going to wrap up with fasting and uh, talk about that a little bit. Then we're going to spend most of our time on what we've learned from this whole topic, try to wrap it up tonight. Okay, on every subject so far, we've looked at what the law itself said, what God said, and then what the practice had become by the time Jesus got there. And we've noticed a huge change on all of them. Uh, Fasting, there was only one day uh, commanded as a fast, the Day of Atonement. For the Jewish folks, as uh, best I know anyway, and uh, Leviticus and uh, numbers, I gave you some passages there, you can find that. Uh, in the prophets, beyond the law, uh, in the prophets after the exile, they started observing four other fasts. And so in uh, Zechariah 8:19, uh, you can read about them and it says they're in the fourth, uh, the f- fourth and fifth and seventh and tenth months. So they started some other fasts in addition to the original law. Uh, Esther 9.31 implies that a fast was established, uh, uh, a Purim, and I think they uh, observed that. The Old Testament does talk about fasts, a different people. Uh, Sometimes the whole tribe was supposed to fast. Uh, The people of Israel were supposed to fast over something. Uh, when they were grieving, when they were penitent, uh, when they needed to be humbled, when they wanted to punish themselves, sometimes there was a fellow or two that fasted, and when they sought God's guidance. So you can find individual people and individual situations where the leader said, let's fast about this. But as far as commanded, regular fasting, there's really only one in the law one day a year. Now, by the time Jesus got here, the practice was that really strict Jews fasted on Monday and Thursday was the general practice that I've found in studying anyway. Uh, In Luke 18, 12, the Pharisee bragged, he said, I fast twice a week. Uh, He was right up there. He was a strict observer of the traditions and the oral law and everything else, and he fasted twice a week and was quite proud of it. Uh, The disciples of the Pharisees fasted probably twice a week, uh, and strangely enough, the disciples of John the Baptist fasted often or much, the passage that we're going to look at tonight says. So within the community there, lots of, almost everybody, fasted uh, more than the law originally said. Okay, so now the confrontation. Here's the situation. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17, it's told two other places that I summarized for you. In uh, Matthew 9, however, it says this. Then the disciples of John came to him. Now, that's important. Pay attention. Uh, the people who were still following John the Baptist came to Jesus and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Well, Jesus went all such places on this, didn't he? He said a number of interesting things. Uh, it's a little bit different in Mark. It says people came to him and asked him. And in Luke chapter 5 it just says they said to him. And in that verse it says the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So all these religious people had noticed that Jesus and his followers did something different than the religious establishment. Now, what did Jesus respond? What did the apostles learn from this? And as the 13th apostle, what do we learn from this? Well, Jesus' basic response to this is really kind of unique. Uh, He just says to the original question, why don't your disciples fast? And he basically says, my disciples are happy. Why should they fast? So they got the bridegroom with them. Well, we're okay. Why should we be fasting? And then he gives them two parables. Now, what I want you to note about that is he didn't attack them in any other way. He didn't say one word about what they were doing. He, if the Pharisees wanted to fast twice a week, it seemed okay with Jesus. He just answered their question. Why don't you guys fast? Why should we? And then he gave them two parables that got to the point a little bit differently. Uh, The first one is about a piece of new cloth patched on an old garment. Uh, Those of you that still patch things, I don't know if anybody does or not, but people that still patch things uh, know that if you cut a brand new piece of cloth out, and don't pre-wash it or shrink it, pre-shrink it, and you sew it on an old garment. When you wash the whole thing, it's going to be a mess. Uh, the new patch is going to shrink up, and then it's really going to look weird. Okay? Not as weird as those great big old iron-on patches that went on my knees when I was a kid, but, you know, completely different color than the jeans and everything else. Couldn't hardly bend them. You had to kind of walk like that, but... Uh, <laughs> But anyhow, that's what Jesus says is. Nobody puts an unshrunk piece of garment on an old garment. It just doesn't work. And then secondly, he says, and you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Uh, when wine is put in the wineskin to cure or ferment or whatever it does, it expands. Okay? So you get a new wineskin, a fresh one that will expand with it. And if you take an old wineskin that's hard and uh, tough old leather and all that and pour new wine in it, it'll blow it up. You don't do that. Okay? So that's the principle that he's teaching them. His real answer was why should we fast? And then he took them to the principle and explained it uh, basically that fasting and fasting. Uh, being happy having the bridegroom with them and all that doesn't go together fasting is about is a state of mind where most often you can't eat you read that list of things from the old testament uh, grieving and penitence and uh, all of that you, you don't have an appetite uh, sometimes it's used for a spiritual discipline today, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But fasting in the Old Testament was a grieving kind of thing. Okay. So he says, oh, in essence, fasting just doesn't fit. If you're really troubled about something, if you're penitent, if you've committed something wrong and are sorry for it and you want to f- seek God's Uh, input on something, then fasting's natural. But if you're with the bridegroom, the fasting would be weird. It would be incongruous. It doesn't fit. Now, Jesus said all that in just three little sentences. He said, why should we fast? It wouldn't fit. It's like sewing a patch on a garment. It's like putting new wine in old wineskins. Okay, so that's the answer. That's the whole story on fasting, which is different than the stories we've got on washings and Sabbath. And we'll talk about those on the flip side here. But uh, first I put a little list of scriptures down there at the bottom about Christian fasting. What's the Bible say? What's the New Testament say? Uh, And some people teach different things. Some people teach that we ought to fast, and there's all sorts of ways and processes to fast. Uh, Here's pretty much the facts as I find them in the Bible. Uh, The Old Testament fasting is mentioned with, like I said, sad kind of things. You have a public calamity, uh, uh, afflictions, disease hits the camp, Uh, you're confessing sin, you're humiliated, you're bereaving. There's a whole lot of it about bereaving. Uh, when a great leader died, they fasted. So the Old Testament talks about that. New Testament, it's got no command in it to fast. Uh, absolutely nowhere does it say Christians are supposed to fast, but the Bible also, the New Testament also presents it as a good, beneficial thing. So that's the two things we've got to deal with. The Bible doesn't say you have to do it, but it says it's a good thing. Beyond that, Jesus. Implied that Christians would fast. He didn't command us to. And some people take this implication and turn it into a whole doctrine of fasting that we have to. Uh, but he didn't command it. He implied it. He said in Matthew 9, When I'm gone, then they will fast. And he said in Matthew 6, uh, When you fast, don't make it obvious to others. So he implied that Christians would fast. Uh, Early Christians did fast. Acts 13.23, the church in Antioch was trying to decide about missionaries and some other things, and so they fasted and prayed before they made those decisions. Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas were selecting elders for all the churches that they had been to, and it says they prayed and fasted. When they were making those selections. So early Christians did fast. And Jesus did talk about the purpose of fasting, in a sense, in Matthew 6. He said, when you fast, don't let anybody else know you're doing it. So fasting is a purely personal thing. That doesn't mean we couldn't have a corporate fast. I think that would be all right and fine and probably a good thing. But... When Jesus talked about personal uh, fasting, he said the Pharisees do it just to be seen. He said, in fact, they make it worse. They, they make their face look bad, and they don't comb their hair, and they go out like they're about to die. And uh, somebody says, what's wrong with you? Oh, well, I'm fasting for the Lord. And Jesus said, don't you do that. Okay. When you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, look slick. And don't let on like anything's different. So it's about you and God, not about everybody else. So that's my summary of what the New Testament says about it. Uh, I don't think we have to. I think it would probably be much better if we did more of it than we do. And I think uh, lots of people that do it, uh, do it for a spiritual discipline, to tell their body that I'm still in control here and I want to draw closer to God. That's a good thing. Uh, it's kind of a strange topic because the people who are best at it, we don't know who they are. <laughs> so we can't ask many questions about it. Uh, kind of a strange topic. But yeah, that's that's fasting. Okay, now let's turn to the other side and I want to spend the rest of our time on uh, taking all five or six lessons here and seeing what we learned. Uh, Jesus and the Twelve have been through a few things here. They've been quizzed. They've been condemned about working on the Sabbath, about not washing before meals, uh, about not fasting like everybody else. And we've seen Jesus' reaction. Uh, We've seen how he operated when they came to him with these things. So let's consider... What would the 13th Apostle think after all of this teaching? And these are just my top three. Uh, Number one, I thought of it this way. Remember how the 12 were raised? How much of the law they knew? How much of the scripture they knew? And no doubt they followed uh, what the Pharisees taught. That was what good Jews did. They followed the teaching of the Pharisees and uh, tried to abide by all of the oral law and everything else. On top of that, lots of the twelve were disciples of John. So at least on fasting, they probably did exactly what John did. So now they've been called out to, to go with Jesus, and how different would that be? Than what they were used to. Uh, in our one of our reference books, Doctor Bruce uh, described what the apostles went through as the beginning of spiritual emancipation, the first steps of nonconformity. It was probably like learning to swim, kind of scary. They'd been raised in this environment of the Pharisees interpreting and passing down all 6,000 pages of this stuff and now they're with Jesus and he doesn't act like everybody else. It had to be a really strange thing. Uh, Maybe like coming out of some very strict uh, or even to press it to the extreme like coming out of a cult. Uh, People that come out of a cult that have every little phase of their life dictated, if they get out of that, it's hard for them. Uh, they don't know how to operate. Well, I don't think it was that bad for the, the apostles, but it was sure different. To be with the master and run into all these different confrontations about these topics. So their learning It kind of impresses me and what they had to go through here. Okay, The biggie, I think, is number two is on all of the things we've looked at consistently, we've seen that the law and the practice are way apart. Okay? Who does that? Man does that. Okay? Man takes what God says, takes the principle that God lays down, and makes it hard. In all of these examples, and a lot of other examples, and a lot of 21st century examples, man tends to want to make lists of things and make rules about things and record exactly what you can define right and wrong with. God tends toward real big principles, and yeah, he had... Lots of rules in the Old Testament, but not 6,000 pages. Man did that. So I drew this little picture here, and I thought, whenever we run into any kind of situation about is this right, wrong, or religious or not religious or what, maybe we ought to remember this. Jesus, in every case, wanted to go back to the original, He wanted to go back to the principle. Man, in every case, wanted to make it harder, make lists and rules and uh, uh, an encyclopedia of here's exactly what you can and can't do. And to me, at least, going through all these religious acts, uh, stories, that's what I saw is Jesus going back to the principle and man being hung up in his list of rules and regulations. Now, maybe that'll help us as the thirteenth apostle to deal with some of our things. Okay, now I said number two was the biggie. I think that's the general principle. Uh, but uh, the second one, or most second most important to me, is what I put down as number three: is Jesus didn't have a one-size-fits-all response. Okay, everybody that came to him and asked him a question about these things or attacked him or confronted him, they were wrong. They were wrong in some way, but he treated them all different. They were wrong about what they thought and taught and thought he ought to be doing, but he didn't call them heretics. He didn't say they were all going to hell. He dealt completely different with different problems. And and I think this is, I'm thinking ahead here. I think we're going to see this quite a bit this year. Jesus dealt differently with different people. Some people he was basically rude to. And some people he was just extremely kind and loving. People's hearts made a difference to him. But anyhow, if we look at these three examples that we've Spent a few weeks on it. Maybe we can get to what I'm trying to say. Okay, fasting and the Sabbath and washing. He treated them all differently. Okay, when they came to him about fasting, the one we just talked about, the problem was that they were using fasting in the wrong situation. They thought fasting uh, was something you did automatically and it counted and all that. And they wondered why Jesus wasn't. He said there wasn't any need to. You're fasting when you don't need to, maybe. His solution was he just gave them some information. He just counseled them a little bit. Um, he said, he talked about patches on clothes and wineskins and then walked off. Yeah, let them figure it out. His basic reaction was we're all okay. You know, if you want to fast twice a week, that's okay. Me and my disciples, we don't need to. He didn't say one word about it being wrong or out of place or anything else. He just said, here's why we do what we do. And you might think about patching old garments and putting wine in wineskins. He was very conciliatory, if you will, very nice. Then the Sabbath, when they came to him about that, every case was the Pharisees and the leaders Telling him he couldn't heal people on the Sabbath, okay? and he's actually surprisingly nice about this one. Uh, the problem I think was that they were overly strict. Now they were so overly strict that they had no mercy. We've talked about being a real rule keeper it probably makes you mean sometimes. You know, the, the people that got the person that got healed, uh, the Pharisees turned to everybody else. In the temple, and said, There's six other days you can be healed. You come back, you're not going to get healed today, or as long as I'm watching. You know, it kind of makes you mean. But they, uh, they were overly strict about it. They were so intent on not breaking the Sabbath that they pressed it a little too far. And see, Jesus knew you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. That was right. They had that part right. He understood that. And so I think he understood that, okay, these guys pressed it too far. So how he handled it was he just reminded them of the original intent. He said, what's the Sabbath about? He said, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a good thing. The Sabbath was made to give man a rest. Think about that. And then he went on and explained even more with some common sense. He said, if your sheep falls in the ditch, you'd get him out on the Sabbath, wouldn't you? You'd show a little mercy there. If your donkey needs water, you'd take your donkey over and get him some water. You'd show some mercy there. You understand that much about mercy. So how can you tell me I can't heal this woman? He didn't chew them out. He didn't get mad at them. He just pointed out that, okay, you're being too strict about this. This doesn't make sense. And he'd, every, every answer he had, and go back to that lesson, it was all common sense. Trying to show them that you have gone too far. Okay, then the last one, the ceremonial washing. Uh, on this one, Jesus did get hot. Okay, so what's the difference? Why is this different than the other two? Well, what they were doing, the problem was that they were mandating a useless practice and teaching the wrong principle with it. Okay, we looked at the law. Yeah, the priests had to wash themselves and all of that, but... There wasn't anything in there about washing before every meal and doing it in a special way and holding your hands up and holding your hands down and doing all this stuff. And they had made that up and then said, that's what makes you spiritual. And if you come to my table and don't do that, you're not spiritual. That's when Jesus got hot. When they started saying the physical act Equals spirituality, he attacked them. He attacked their motives. He attacked their hearts. He said, Isaiah was prophesying about you when he said, uh, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But you guys have got rotten hearts. You're clean on the outside, but the inside is dirty. Okay? His reaction was hostile and condemning. On this one, he got after him. Okay, see the widespread there. All of them were wrong. He's the son of God. He could have said, "Don't bother me about that foolishness." On all of them, but some of them he was very nice and said, "Okay, if you want to do that's fine." Some of them he said, "You better think about what you're doing. Just it doesn't even make sense." And on this one, he said. You black-hearted rascals! You are confusing people about what's spiritual, about what my father intended. Okay, so I think that's the second big lesson I'd get out of this topic of religious acts. Is first, Jesus always went back to the original plan of God. And second one, he didn't have the same response to everything. He considered where this person was coming from, and then dealt with it in an appropriate way, everywhere from very conciliatory and nice to pretty hostile. Okay, now my fourth point is more of a take-with-you take kind of lesson, uh, assuming that we've got any modern-day Pharisees or rule-keepers or somebody who's wrong about something, uh, assuming that. I think maybe some of you have seen some of that someplace in your past life, not at Northside, but somewhere. Uh, We had a guy, one place I was for about a year, Mark, that I privately called him the Pharisee. He was the keeper of the ordinances. I don't know where he had them all written down, but I think he had more than 6,000 pages he he knew everything that was supposed to be done and not. And if you varied a little bit, he'd jump you. Okay? Now, nice guy and sincere and all that, but he just made life miserable. Okay? Uh, there's a few folks around like that. I think that's their job to watch every little thing. Uh, I was thinking through this about if I ever run into any of these kind of people. Uh, I've seen a few in my day. I had one guy tell me, this was a long time ago, uh, after I preached a sermon and talked about Easter in it, he came up after and told me I was not to ever say the word Easter from the pulpit again. Because that's not in the Bible. King James where it says Easter is a bad translation, so don't you ever say that from the pulpit again. I said, I assured him that I probably would, and he was free not to. He didn't want to say Easter. He didn't have to. I was nice to him, but I've run into people like that, and he was—he was kind of a special case. <laughs> now, when I talk about this, and we're going to wrap up with just a few examples that I've dreamed up. Uh, the caveat is, I understand that this is a continuum. I understand that to some people, I probably sound pharisaical. When I talk about some practice or rule or regulation or some ceremonial thing, Or I'm sure to somebody, I seem pharisaical. And it's all a continuum, and whoever's kind of right of us, we think they're pharisaical, and whoever's left, we think they're kind of liberal, and I understand all that. But I still think this principle that we learned in number three of how people deal with spiritual things and physical things and ceremonial acts and worship and and all of that I think we'll look at where they're coming from and what's really going on before we respond for instance uh, and I told you to consider some modern day examples so I tried to make a few up uh, I didn't make them up, they're real examples, so I decided to tell you some, is what I guess I'm saying. Uh, a few years ago, the area-wide worship had fallen into uh, disrepair and we didn't have an area-wide worship, okay. uh, about 15 years ago actually, and uh, I started asking the preachers at the preacher's meeting, why couldn't we have an area-wide worship, and they said, well, oh, if somebody wants to get it started, I'm sure we could, so I sent a questionnaire out to all the churches in driving distance, and said, give me some input. Would you like to do this? When would be a good time? Do you have a suggestion for speakers? i asked ask all the questions. Well, I got one back from one preacher that told me that uh, an area-wide worship would probably be all right, but not on Sunday night. Couldn't have it on Sunday night because individual congregations... Uh, were supposed to assemble on Sunday night, and that was one of the most important things they had to do. And they needed to be there in case some visitor came by and they had to have church doors open and on and on. And he explained all that to me, that if you do have an area wide worship, we won't be there. Okay. I think from my position in the continuum that he was wrong. I ah, was a little overly strict. Yeah. So what's my reaction? Call him a heretic and condemn him to hell? Uh, no. My reaction was, okay. If that's what you think, okay. You know, Now, if I'd have been talking to him or if he would have asked for some input, which I didn't see any asking in there, but if he would have wanted some information... I probably would have said, have you ever thought about the original purpose of assembling? If assembling together with brothers and sisters is to encourage each other to love and good works, would you be more encouraged by 30 people or by 1,000 people? I'm not being mean, I'm just asking kind of common sense. I think there's some places we do that. Jesus did that. When the Pharisees were overly strict about the Sabbath, he said, I better think about this a little bit. Does that make sense to you that you'd take care of a donkey, but I couldn't heal a woman? Uh, Another one I thought of from this is older than a lot of you. Back when we had Joy Bus Ministries uh, We thought it was a wonderful idea, and all of a sudden we had a hundred untrained children in the worship assembly, and we said, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. What do we do with them? This ain't working. Uh, So we come up with the idea well, let's take them to another room and have a service for them. Children's training hour, or children's Bible hour, I think is what we called it. Uh, Some people called it children's worship. Well, those of you that lived through that and old enough to remember uh, and not old enough to forget, uh, that that stirred up quite a controversy. A lot of brotherhood papers were writing about you can't have children's worship. Well, why can't you have children's worship? Well, because worship is when you're all assembled together in one place. So you all got to be in the same room you can not have part of the people over somewhere else worshiping and part in this room worshiping and they made a huge deal about it. It was all people without joy bus ministries that were making that argument, but anyhow, they were. Yeah. How do you deal with that? I mean, well, what do you say to them? Call them heretics? You know. Uh I think once again they'd they're being overly strict for some reason. Now, I realize that's my spot in the continuum, but I think that, and some of you might not. But maybe there's another place to think about common sense. You, you all got to be together in one room. Okay, do you have a cry room where, where a mother and her child could go to another room? Would that still be worshiped? You know, if you've all got to be in one room, can you have a deacon out in the lobby doing something? I've always wondered what deacons do in the lobby. But. <laughs> Anyhow, can you do that? Or have you all got to be in one room? I mean, just, uh, this is what Jesus did. Just ask questions. Does this make sense to you? You know? If I'm preaching and somebody gets sick and gets up and leaves the room, do I say, stop? We're done. The old so-and-so gets feeling better and comes back. See, it doesn't make sense. And I think that's probably the way Jesus would deal with it uh, to some degree, perhaps. just. And all I'm trying to do is show you when somebody's, Wrong, according to your opinion. How do you deal with it? Well, I think you ought to think through it a little bit first. Deal with it different ways. Okay, tell you one last one. Then Whoa, let's hurry. Uh, we had a new convert around here. He wants to know your Bible, came to church, we baptized him. Uh, nice fellow, not... Uh, well... And I'll say that the Rhodes Scholars people were never going to bother him. Let's put it that way. He, but he was a good guy, competent, held a job, all of that. Uh, got along just fine. We all loved him and helped him, and he had a few problems, and we worked on him and all that. He left. He moved. Thought he could get a better job back in his home state, so he moved east from here a ways. And after a while, he called me all the time after that, but, and he called a few others here, Carl and some others. But anyhow, he called me one time, and he started talking kind of around in circles about how he was worried about Northside. And I couldn't figure out what he was getting to. And he, he had some stuff that his preacher had written, and he wanted to send that to me and have me read it. And I said, well, what's it about? Yeah. Well, what he had done is he'd got into a group that believes, because of one verse in 1 Corinthians, that you shouldn't have a kitchen in the building. Okay, uh, And they believed that and followed that and taught that and believed that folks that do are digressive, at least. Uh, so they told Dan, basically, that all of us were going to hell because we had a kitchen in the building. And he was worried about it. I had him very upset. Now, how do you deal with that? I mean, I think they're wrong from my position. So so this gets a confrontation and says, you know, not why do you not wash your hands before you eat, but why do you eat in the building? That's the confrontation. Uh, my response would be if they believe that and practice that and are convinced that that's right, my response would be, okay, that's okay with me if you really think that. You know, if you've studied it and believe that so makes good sense and that really pleases God and all that, okay. Now, we've got Over the years, we've had some people here that believe that, but they wanted some of the teaching and some of the uh, advantages that we have at Northside instead of that group that they were a part of, and so they came here and they were quite open about it. They said, we were raised this way and we still believe that, and we really can't get over it in one sense. But we want to worship with you, but we can't take part in potlucks and things like that. And our elders said, okay, that's fine. And, and they said, they went on and said, well, we're not going to make a deal out of it. We're not going to try to teach other people that that's what spirituality is about. It's just something we believe. And the elders said, fine. Yeah. So Dan called me and talked to me about all this stuff and finally he sent me the, the guy's teachings and, and all that and I read through it. And what happened was I got hostile. I got upset. Okay? Not about the teaching. Because I've already told you, if that's what they believe, that's okay. Okay? But what I told their preacher was, what you have done is taken a man-made doctrine. One completely man-made. Because the New Testament said nothing about buildings. And you've made it a test of spirituality, where you have taught a new convert that all of the brothers and sisters that love him and helped him get to where he is, are going to hell. That's not right. That's gone too far. You've taken this simple-minded fellow that believed in Jesus, and believed in the body and the family, and had a wonderful relationship, and loved each other, and, and on and on, and you've taught him that... A physical structure has something to do with spirituality. Yeah. So I got upset, and I told that preacher why I was upset. And I sent Dan a copy of the oh, everything I sent him and the, the tapes that I'd made of it and everything else. Did I react properly? I don't know. Yeah. But what I'm trying to say is, on stuff like this, there's differences, and Jesus saw that. Jesus figured that out. All of them were wrong. everybody and we're wrong. everybody's wrong. but everybody that came to Jesus was wrong and he, he didn't treat them all the same. treated them differently. Okay, religious liberty. hopefully that topic, even though we went a little long tonight, I did both sides of the page by the way. It's the first time I've done that in a long time, so that's good. All right, that's our first topic, is religious liberty and ceremonial acts and all of that. Uh, another big thing that Jesus taught the apostles about was prayer. In fact, they asked him to do that. They said, teach us to pray. So we're going to tackle that. Starting next week, Brother Toby's going to tackle that series on prayer. Uh, I can't remember if he did. I think you've got about seven sermons on that, maybe. But anyhow, for Sunday nights for a while, we'll be talking about what Jesus taught the Twelve about prayer. If you're here this evening and need to respond in any way, we'd be happy to help you. I'll be at the front to receive you, and if you need prayers or whatever, come to the front. Let's stand and sing.